Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Mafka's Common Ground Radio is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of organic food and agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is C.J. Walk, and I'm your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today, the topic for our show is soil and spring garden soil preparations as we're moving into spring. And the sun is out a little more and things are warming up. I think the snow is gone for most folks, hopefully. Uh, I have a couple guests with me today on the show, but before we get to introductions, I do want to bring up a couple season, seasonal items of interest and calendar events uh, that are going on in our area. So for a couple events, on May 3rd is the fourth annual plowing event at Winterberry Farm, which is presented by the Farmers Steer and Oxen Club of Maine. And that is that Sunday at 10 a.m. at Winterberry Farm on Route 27 in Belgrade. This is open to the public, and please bring a potluck lunch. And for more information, you can call area code 207-649-3331. And then on May 6th and 7th is the 15th annual Maine Fiber Frolic, which is held at the Windsor Fairgrounds, and that's on Route 32 in Windsor. So that runs um, those two days over the weekend. And for more information, you can log on to their website at fiberfrolic.com. And then as we get into early June, uh, a little over a month away, is going to be on June 13th is the Farm and Homestead Day at the Mofka Grounds in Unity. And there are numerous uh, workshops going on there all day long, great learning opportunities from what I read here, and um, more information can be found by calling the Mofka office at 568-4142 or looking up information on the website at www.mofka.org. And then also as spring is here, farmer's markets are popping up, and I have a couple notes of some of the local farmer's markets in our area that are starting. Um, One note is here that the Belfast Farmer's Market, uh, Friday, May 8th, from 9 to 1, uh, we'll be at the Waterfall Arts Center there in Belfast. And there will be a local guest music performer named Colin Graybert will be providing entertainment throughout the market for that day. And then also on Saturday, May 9th, the Camden's Farmer's Market will be back up and running. And that is at the upper parking lot behind the Knox Mill from 9 a.m. until noon. And then, of course, if you are looking for more Organic products, farmers, uh, great certified organic foods. You can always go to the mofka.org website and right there on the home page, click on the yellow pepper on the right that will give you um, access to everything that we have in our database that will be available for certified organic products, uh, CSA shares um, that you can support. So 
After uh, the calendar there, we'll get right into the topic for the show, and I would like to introduce our two guests that are with me here today. And first, uh, first guest is Eric Seidman, who is the organic crop specialist for MOFCA. And Eric, thank you for joining us here today. Hi, CJ. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Uh, and then we also have Bruce Hoskins with us from the soil testing lab that is up in Orono. So, Bruce, thank you for being here today as well. Hi, CJ. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, and just to let listeners know that for the format for the show, um, we will be opening up the phone lines about halfway through. Uh, at that point, Bruce will be dropping off of the phone line and we'll free up a phone line for calls to come in. So at that time, about 1030, I will give the toll-free call-in number um, for people to call in with questions. And Eric will be on with me for the rest of the show. So first, uh, Eric and Bruce, I'd just like to kind of circle back to you. Um, Eric, if we could start and just kind of introduce yourself so people know who you are and what you do for work. That would be great. All right. I worked for MOFCA for nearly 30 years. I, I actually think this month is my 29th anniversary. Oh. I was hired uh, to be a crop specialist. I work mostly with vegetable crops and small fruit. And essentially, I am like an extension agent where people call me and ask questions, or I go out and visit farms or give lectures and help people grow, both gardeners and farming. Okay, great. Well, I'm sure we'll be able to help some more listeners through the course of the show here today. Um, And then, Bruce, if you could go ahead and just give uh, an introduction for the work that you do with the lab and services you folks provide. Um, Sure. Um, I've been here at the university for over 30 years, um, involved in soil testing all that, most of that time. Uh, I coordinate the soil testing program for the university, uh, and we, this is just kind of the traditional, one of the traditional services of a land-grant university. Um, the lab's been around for oh, at least 75 years in one form or another. Um, we run about 15,000 soil samples a year uh, for farmers, gardeners, homeowners, consultants, um, and um, basically um, try to help folks manage their soil fertility and soil health. Um, in a nutshell, there are more details, of course, but I'll leave it at that. Okay, that's great. And um, I would just to ask both of you guys, since you were both on the phone, uh, just to speak clearly directly into the phone, and that helps with the, the, the listeners to get a clear, make sure they can understand everything that you're saying. So uh, just a technical note there. So I guess really the first question I wanted to ask, since we're going to talk about soil and um, soil garden prep here as we're moving into springtime is really just a basic question. What is soil? And I guess maybe Bruce, would you want to take a a stab at that one? (laughs) Um, Well, soil is um, a a mixture of mineral and organic material um, derived from either bedrock or glacial material or uh, lake sediment or um, uh, even ocean bottom in, in, in Maine. Um, those are so-called parent materials that provide sand, silt, and clay content. And then to that is added various plant and animal residues over the millennia. Um, and um, and uh, this is all worked over by um, the soil microbial population. Um, and you have, you know, develop a, a fertile mixture of the two. Uh, there's a certain amount of um, 
uh, pore space in the soil that's essential for um, providing oxygen, both to plant roots and to beneficial microbes. And part of that pore space is filled with water, so it's a mixture of mineral material, organic material, air, and water. Um, in the simplest breakdown, I suppose. Um, do you have any more specific details than you need than than that? Or no, I think that's great. I just wanted to kind of start start at the ground. I guess is what I was what I was shooting for. Um, no pun intended. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Um, Eric, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to ask you um, in working with Mofka some of well, first just to get an idea that soil you know there's a lot more going on in the soil than just saying a, a handful of dirt, so to speak. But um, for organic farmers and gardeners, when we talk about soil and managing soil, there are some kind of challenges that are faced for organic gardeners or some primary areas of focus. Yes. Uh... Well, I think Bruce uh, gave you the background that you need to understand. Uh, I like to tell people there, there are two uh, characteristics of soil that you have to work on maintaining, and one of them are those pore spaces that Bruce talked about because that's the key to whether your soil holds water, holds too much water, or if the uh, pore spaces get filled um, and there's no air left for the plants because people forget that the roots of a plant need air as well. And so half of your job as a farmer is to maintain those pore spaces, uh, which is uh, talked about in maintaining soil structure. That's really what you mean when you say soil structure. And the other half of your maintenance of the soil is maintaining the fertility of soil. The 16 or 17 different uh, elements that plants need have to be available, and most of them come through the soil. Okay. All right. And then, so... seems like there's kind of this chemistry side and, and a biology side that's happening in the soil and the two, two really And the physical to side together. as well. And the physical side in right. terms of... And so if people who are Mafka members got the most recent newspaper, and my article in there is about what we called recreational tilling. This is the time of the year when people want to get out with their rototiller. They've been pent up all winter. Um, but excessively tilling can destroy that soil structure, so there's no water holding capacity or air availability. Okay. All right. right. Hopefully people will read along. Bruce, did you want to add something there about the... Um, yeah, that's that's something that we run into as a common problem uh, with... Uh, well, fairly common problem of people, uh, and, and recreational tilling is probably a, a really good way to to, to phrase it. Um, tilling, usually for weed control, several times during the growing season. Uh, every time you fluff up the soil, um, you you supercharge the soil with oxygen, um, and you know microbes, the microbial population tends to uh, speed up their a natural breakdown process of organic materials, and basically you're trying to build and maintain organic matter in the soil, and that can be counterproductive in terms of uh, you know, accelerating the breakdown of it as well as um, destroying the structure, those maintaining those pore spaces. So there's been a real emphasis recently on um, minimal tilling um, and and light tilling as opposed to using something that, you know, really beats the soil up and, and, you know, you wind up with a nice talcum powder seed bed, but the next time it rains, it turns into concrete, and um, so to speak. And um, so minimal tillage um, is a good idea. 
Okay. And I know that I've read some things where tillage being referred to as kind of a necessary evil, um, but but the uh, me, uh, primary means of getting some of that material back into the soil, which I wanted to ask Eric to speak a little bit. Uh, Bruce mentioned organic matter, um, but I wanted Eric to maybe speak a little bit towards organic matter and and what are we speaking of when we say organic matter and 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 maintaining organic matter within the soil? Well, organic matter is kind of the key of organic farming. I don't know if that's where the name came from or not, um, but it, it's really at the heart of both the quality of the soil and the means of a long-term storage of nutrients. And so we do our best to maintain the organic matter levels in the soil uh, and maintain the populations of microbes that are going to eat that organic matter and decompose it during that process, they release glues and cements that make soil particles stick together. And those particles sticking together, forming secondary aggregates, is actually what creates the soil structure. The other half of the story is all of the organic matter from previous crops and weeds or compost you've added or whatever is a long-term storehouse of nutrients, recycling them from one generation to the next. Okay, and is, is it um, is it the case that the nutrients that are there in that organic matter, uh, as the soil biology is working on those materials, that's what makes them converts them into available forms for the plants to absorb and utilize? Yeah, exactly right. So when you talk about a living organism, all of the elements, the minerals that make it, are in complex compounds: carbohydrates, proteins, fats. And those are not available to a plant. A plant doesn't have the ability to bite and chew and eat and digest. So what a plant does is actually pick up the nutrients it needs from the soils in elemental or very simple compounds. Um, And so it's the decomposition of those proteins and carbohydrates that break them down into simpler elements and simple compounds that plants can absorb. Um, and so you actually have two forms of organic matter, uh, in the, a fresh organic matter that is quickly attacked by the microbes, used as a food source. And when it's quickly attacked, it, those nutrients that are released are, are made available quite quickly. Um, and then you have a stable form of organic matter that people refer to it as humus. That is the long-term storage. It, it is very resistant to decay. It can sit in the soil for long periods of time. But it does break down slowly, and as it does, it slowly releases a bit more nutrients. So you, you have to pay attention to both. Okay, so it seems like it's kind of a progression going from the the fresh organic matter that can be decomposed quickly then kind of stabilizes into the humus layer. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And there was a soil scientist at the University of Vermont, yeah, was good Fred Magdoff. Bring up Fred, to, yeah. He used to refer to them as the living, the dead, and the very dead. And so you have the living plants that are, or animals that are roaming around in the soil. When they die, they start to be decomposed, and that's so a quick source of nutrients and helps to build a soil structure. And then that very dead is the humus in the soil. That is your, your storehouse of long-term fertility in the soil. Okay. And also, actually, uh, Bruce will probably talk about it later, that, that slow-release form of organic matter called humus plays a tremendous role in what's referred to as cation exchange capacity and water holding capacity. Okay. All right. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to move over to ask Bruce a little bit about um, some of the to- soil testing and 
analysis, I actually have a report here right in front of me from uh, from my home. But um, Bruce, in terms of, I would like to touch on the cation exchange capacity piece, but um, I also wanted to ask you just to speak a little bit about the soil pH and pH levels and how that can affect the availability of different nutrients in the soil. Um, well, soil pH is uh, uh, very important in terms, like as you alluded to, uh, nutrient availability. pH is just the acidity or alkalinity of the soil, pH 7 being neutral. Uh, anything below 7 is acidic to intensely acidic, and anything above 7 is alkaline. So our soils tend to be naturally acidic when they're derived from forest land, you're starting out at uh, very acid levels of, you know, uh, four, sometimes down in the high threes. Um, and um, most vegetable crops do well, do best at somewhere between a pH of 6.0 and 7.0. It doesn't have to be that precise, but just slightly acid, just just below neutral. And that is, uh, at that point, that's the... Um, that maximizes the availability of most of the major nutrients. Um, at, at low pH, um, uh, some of the micronutrients like iron, manganese, zinc, uh, uh, availability tends to increase, but the major nutrients availability decreases. So you're looking for that kind of the sweet spot in the pH range where you can maintain the optimum availability of all the major micronutrients, and that tends to be somewhere between 6 and 7. Okay. All right. And then the availability of those nutrients um, and, and how they are, I guess, attached into the soil structure would get into the cation exchange capacity of a soil, which um, is another thing that you look at in soil analysis. Is that correct, Bruce? That's right. That's kind of the centerpiece of our testing system or reporting and interpretation and recommendation system for some but not all of the nutrients. Um, cation exchange capacity, um, I suppose I should explain. <laughs> nutrients um, Nutrients are, as Eric alluded to, uh, are not just grabbed by the plant. They're, they have to go through the soil water. They have to be dissolved in the soil water uh, as either plus or minus charge ions. Plus charge ions are called cations, and negatively charged ions are called anions. And for three of the essential nutrients, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, those are all plus charged ions or, or cations. And we, we estimate in our testing and reporting system um, the soil's capacity to hold them, and they're held in the soil by static attraction. And... If you're an electrician, you know that ground is negative, okay? It has a negative charge. There are a lot of negatively negatively charged sites on uh, clay and finely broken down organic matter or humus, as Eric was talking about. Uh, those all have negative charge surfaces, and they hold or bind these plus charge ions uh, just by static attraction. It's the same thing as if you rubbed a balloon on your shirt and put it on the wall, it's held there by static attraction. And that's all that cation exchange capacity in its simplest form is just the total negative charge, active negative charge in the soil and its ability to hold those plus charge nutrients. 
Okay, so is it a, a matter of is the high does the higher negative charge hold more of the positively charged? Right, that's that's your nutrient holding capacity, and the more the higher your organic matter level in general, the the greater your nutrient holding capacity with respect to those plus charged nutrients. Okay, okay, and then with the, back to the kind of the, the pH piece. Um, is that more a measure of how much hydrogen is attached to those sites on the soil rather than some of those other major nutrients, the cations? Right. At very low pH, um, you have a lot of, ex- well, what we call exchangeable acidity. That is the active acidity in the soil that is the primary driver of your soil pH. Uh, at very low pH, acid soils, um, um, your uh, acidity, your is also an exchangeable cation, has a plus charge, mm-hmm. and more of the nutrient holding capacity is occupied with acidity and less by the essential nutrients. So that's something we, we, we want to load up that capacity with useful nutrients and not the less uh, useful and in some cases toxic uh, um, acid ions that, that can um, both take up nutrient holding capacity and in some cases, uh, because aluminum is very active at low pH and can be directly toxic to plant roots, that's another reason for maintaining the pH up uh, fairly close to neutral. So it is possible with that lower pH that some of the more the, the toxic elements could be more available to the plants and cause cause issues. Right, exactly. And that's one of the reasons for adding lime to raise the pH is to get away from any potential uh, nutrient toxicity, of course, this varies by plant group. There are so-called acid-loving plants, like blueberries, for instance, that require a low pH, and they have a very high tolerance um, for, um, for instance, for active aluminum. Uh, they can they can tolerate a high aluminum level. It's not toxic to them. But and at the other end of the scale are the legumes, peas, beans, alfalfa, clover, alfalfa being the most sensitive to... Uh, aluminum toxicity, and with alfalfa, if you're trying to grow that, you need a pH that's um, ideally right at neutral, somewhere around 7, or very, very slightly acidic. So there's a range of tolerance in, in what you're growing, uh, but uh, that's you know there, there's several different pH ranges that are ideal depending upon what you're growing. Okay. All right. Eric, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, Bruce did a thorough job. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, so that's kind of a bit of the chemistry side, but then another, I know, Bruce, we only have you for a couple more minutes, but another side, I just wanted to ask about the biological side and um, some of the testing that you you folks do there at the lab. Um, I believe there's also a test that gives some of the biological activity in the soil. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. That's something we've been able to add in the last uh, five years or so. Uh, there's been a really a big emphasis in the last um, five to ten years of um, not just looking at nutrient chemistry and uh, you know nutrients in nutrients out. Um, the soil is not some inorganic chemistry set. Um, it's a living, breathing ecosystem at the microscopic level, and um, it just the numbers. Of, of microbes, single-celled organisms, are just staggering. It's just uh, hard to conceive in some cases of uh, 
of some of these numbers. Um, for instance, in a one gram of soil in a well amended, well, a fertile soil can have as many as 100 or even 200 million individual single cell organisms in a quarter of a teaspoon of soil. Wow. Just, just tremendous numbers. And if you expand that to a, uh, an acre basis, you know, an acre layer, a tillage layer of soil, called the acre plow layer, traditionally has about 2 million pounds of soil and can have as much as two or three tons of uh, microbial biomass in an acre of soil. So it's really an area that's been kind of ignored traditionally in soil testing. And in the last few years, uh, we've been able to um, provide uh, a, a gauge or a test of uh, biological activity, microbial biomass, uh, basically the health, the biological health of your soil with this, um, our soil biology test. This is something that was developed at uh, Woods End Lab right here in Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will Britton uh, first developed this system to monitor um, um, microbial respiration and compost, but then he adapted it to uh, the somewhat lower respira- respiration rates in soil. Um, and basically, you re-wet dried soil, you get a tremendous flush of, of uh, biological activity, respiration, uh, in the first 24 hours. Uh, they take in oxygen, give off carbon dioxide like we do. So if you confine that in a jar and you put one of those uh, Salvita paddles in, which uh, gives you a nice colorimetric um, gauge of carbon dioxide content, and from that you can infer what the microbial biomass is and, and microbial activity and biological health is of, the, of your soil. Okay. And I know that there's different, different rankings that come from that, those test results. Um, and what, what would the recommend, are there common recommendations if the biological activity were, was low in a soil sample? Would you make recommend, what would the recommendations be that you would make? Well, typically we're, there's a whole interpretation, um, Form that goes out when you ask for that, uh, for that test, um, and it goes along. It's basically derived from uh, Woods End's guidelines. But basically, you're going to add more fresh organic material, either compost or ideally a cover crop uh, with fresh organic material, which is the uh, food for these um, beneficial microbes. They're looking for fresh organic material, the stuff that's already broken down, the very dead organic matter or humus has already been degraded, so they can't derive that much energy from that. But the idea of, of maintaining a healthy microbial population in the soil is to, through regular additions of fresh organic material. Okay. I think it's important to uh, stress why this is important. Um, it's particularly important to people who care about their soil and want to maintain fertility in a sustainable fashion, and that, that's because that high biological activity cycles the nutrients quickly. It, it breaks down the organic matter that you're putting in the soil um, and releases it in forms that are available to the plant. And so this is particularly important to organic farmers that are not putting down soluble sources of nutrients. Um, they're not buying a bag of ammonium nitrate or calcium nitrate. Um, they're putting down soybean meal or fish meal or livestock manure 
and they're depending on the biological activity of the soil to break that down and release the nutrients for the crop they're growing. Okay. All right. Well, um, Bruce, I think we're about halfway through the show, so um, we would say we would let you get get back to the lab and the the stack of tests you have yes. to perform. But I just wanted to, um, before you go, uh, just how would, if people were interested in these services, just how would they find the information or be able to go about um, sending up a soil sample for testing to the lab? Um, well, you can uh, hit our website at any time, uh, 24-7. Uh, if you go to the umain.edu website and, and look in the directory, it'll be under uh, uh, main soil testing uh, service slash analytical lab, and that will take you to our homepage, and you can order sample kits um, uh, that we'll just mail out to you. Um, and you know, you can check off the sampling instructions on the form. Uh, we'll send you containers to send it in, um, and it's about a two-week turnaround time, which everybody's in a hurry this time of year. So be patient with us, <laughs> <laughs> um, and give us enough lead time. Um, but, yeah, that's the easiest way is to just hit our website, or you can go to any county office of Cooperative Extension, and they have uh, carry a supply of our sampling kits. Um, but, yeah, the easiest way is on the website. Okay, that's great. Well, Bruce, thank you for joining us here for the show this morning. Um, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great to have you. It's so. been fun. Okay, have a good rest of your day. Okay, nice talking too. with you, Bruce. Yeah, you too, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, and now, as we move forward, I just want to remind listeners that you are listening to Common Ground Radio here on WERU, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And today we are talking about soil and spring garden prep, which we'll kind of move into for the second half of the show here. And um, we just had Bruce Hoskins on for the first half from the soil testing lab up in Orono. And for the re- remainder of the show, uh, Eric Seidman, the organic crop specialist from MOFCA, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, will be with us to talk more about soil and answer questions. Uh, if any listeners have calls or have questions and want to call in, so we'll be able to open up the phone lines pretty quickly here. And that toll free call in number is 1 866 625 9378. And again, 866-625-9378 to call in with any questions. And um, in the meanwhile, Eric, I'll be asking you some more questions about uh, how organic farmers and gardeners manage their soil. Um, That's what Mafka pays me to do, (laughs) sit around and answer questions. So you're on the clock today. (laughs) That's right. Um, So really, uh, the first half I wanted to just help folks be aware that there is this this chemistry side and this biology side in the soil. And you mentioned that organic farmers are really focused on and really dependent on that biological side. But um, one, of, one of the questions that I had uh, was, where do these microbes come from? Are they just always present in the soil? And when conditions are right, they jump into action? Or Yes, that's a very interesting question. Um, it- People who like to shop a lot will be buying all sorts of things for their soil to introduce microbes to the soil. But in reality, it's much harder to keep the microbes out of the soil than it is to introduce them. They are tiny, as Bruce alluded to, and they blow around in the air. Um, 
and they will be in your soil. And it's the conditions of the soil that determines which ones are there. Um, long conditions for that have been going on for millennia and present-day weather situations change it as well. Um, okay. So there, there's really no need to go buy uh, living organisms and introduce them to your soil. They're going to be there when the conditions are right for them. All right, that's good to know. Well, we have we do have a caller that just called in, so we have Michael from Hope. If you'd like to go ahead and, and give us your comment or question, uh, my question is that um, I'm caretaking for an older piece of property, and uh, the last time it was farmed was probably in the early '70s, and so basically it, now it's the blueberries and the alders have crept in, and I would like to know what I should do. Uh, I would like to reclaim like a hundred by hundred square foot section. Um, what would be the best thing? Do I rotor rotorate it, or rotor till it, or rotorate it to get the root systems, all the you know small scrub and bushes out of it? You know the root system, and then because it's all been mowed down last year. Mm-hmm. But Michael, is this for vegetables? Uh, yes, it is for vegetables, and I'm kind of toying to see if I could you know maybe go through Mafka to to have it approved, but, uh, you know, I'm, it's a big chunk, and I just, I'm wondering what to do next. Okay, that's a, a very common question. Uh, bringing old field, and in your situation, blueberry field, into production for vegetables. And uh, the first situation that you have to do is get rid of what's growing there now, the native shrubs and blueberries and grasses uh, in the other parts of the state are tough to get rid of, and we always recommend that you actually spend a year doing that before you start growing your vegetables. Now, it's easy to recommend that, and I have to admit that when I moved down to my new farm where I am now, I didn't wait the year. I immediately went into crop production. So uh, first, let me give you the ideal, the, the highly recommended way of doing it, and that is spend the whole year getting rid of what's there and getting the soil in good condition and building the fertility up to support your crop and then grow your vegetables the following year. The best way to do that, oddly enough, is to cover the piece you want, if it's small, with a sheet of black plastic. Um, Oddly enough, we hate black plastic, but what it does is it keeps the soil moisture right up to the surface And so the activity of all the microbes and the critters like earthworms and insects that are living in the soil can move up where it's moist enough for them to live, and they will be eating, digesting, and decomposing all of that organic matter that's sitting there in the living. And then because you put black plastic on it and limited the amount of light, a dead form, and then the microbes can take over. Um, The other way of doing it is with a rotor tiller. Um, And you can combine these two efforts. So a piece of ground that we tried to bring into production, actually, for strawberries, we mowed it as short as we could get it, rototilled it to to try to chop up the organic matter, and then covered it with a sheet of plastic that we left on for about a month or a month and a half, and then took the black plastic off. Everything was dead underneath it, and we started rototilling. We took soil samples and sent them up. The first thing that you would adjust would be the pH for all the reasons Bruce talked about in the beginning of the show, and then start building your reservoirs of nutrients. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You too. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, 
So, Eric, the the process that you just mentioned with the plastic, is that referred to as solarization? or No, solarization is different. Uh, solarization doesn't work as well he, uh, here in New England as it does in Israel, for example. Uh, solarization uses clear plastic, and because of the greenhouse effect, um, it warms up underneath the plastic, and it actually, if you keep uh, seal the edges of the plastic, it will get very hot if you have enough sunshine, and it'll get hot enough to kill everything in the top inch or so of soil. Um, and so that's a very quick way of doing what I just described. It doesn't work very well in New England unless you're lucky and get it during a hot spell. Um, we're just not hot enough for that. Okay, so it's actually kind of cooking the, the roots yeah, of the plants. Yeah, cooking the... it with a clear plastic. Okay. I tend not to, I mean, it's okay to do that. It's only going to kill everything in the top half inch or inch of soil because soil is not a very good conductor of heat. And so you don't have to worry about going down and killing everything. But you, you don't want to kill everything, remember. We're not trying to fumigate or sterilize the soil. We're just trying to kill the plants that are growing. We want to maintain the insects and the bacteria. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like we have, we have another caller. Um, so we have Barbara from Brownville on the line. And Barbara, if you'd like to go ahead with your comment or question. Yes, thank you. I just had a question about burning fields in general. Uh, our neighbors recently burned their hayfield and seemed quite pleased with that. And I just wondered what sorts of effects do you get? It seems like a waste of organic matter to me, but I would like to hear your um, analysis of that. Thank you. I'm going to hang up. Okay. Thank okay. you, Barbara. We'll go ahead with that one, Eric. Yes, that's another good question, Barbara. And uh, the National Organic Program, which sets the organic standards, agrees with you. It's a horrible waste of organic matter burning fields, and it's actually prohibited under organic standards. You are allowed to burn vegetable waste only for disease management. Um, so you're not allowed to go into a field and burn it to try to get rid of trees that are growing because it is simply wasting organic matter that is so important for feeding the microbes in the soil. All right. That's interesting. That's good to know. Yes, especially uh, if you're a certified organic grower because you uh, are prohibited from doing so. Yep. Yeah. And what about in a blueberry field situation? Is in that... a blueberry field, you are allowed to burn if you're burning for disease management. Okay. So you'd have to have that disease issue uh, kind of identified and, and documented before going ahead with uh, the burn. I, I'm not sure that you would need to because it's pretty standard practice to burn for disease management. Okay. All right, all right. Well, that's good to know. Um, so, Eric, I guess some of the – I see that we do have another another call on the way in here, so I don't want to ask you a question right off the bat until we get this caller on the line um, well, so, while we wait, I can point out that organic certification is for farmers that are selling crops. It's not a it's not a gardening system. It's really a marketing decision whether you get certified or not, um, and it's a way to assure your customers that you actually know the standards and are following them. Okay, and that's part of the inspection process. That's right. I would stay away from any somebody who says they're organic who is not certified because the organic standards are actually fairly complicated. Um, for example, it seemed like you may not have even know it's against the rules to burn uh, crop debris. Yes. I didn't know you couldn't burn a field. That's right. And <laughs> so that, that's why people get certified, to learn the standards and yeah. then follow them and not just guess at them. Okay. All right. Well, we do have another caller, and uh, we have Catherine from Appleton that is on the line. So, Catherine. Yes. yes good 
morning. Good morning. Um, as far as burning, I always think um, there are so many, uh, other than the organic matter that needs to decompose and go back, there's so many insects, there's so much life, you know, that it's wintered over and it's there ready to uh, claim its existence again. I always just think, oh, my goodness, you know, what are we really doing? Okay, and the second uh, comment and question is, no doubt you are aware of the ongoing radiation coming from Japan for nuclear power plants that cannot be stopped, and we are getting bathed in it. I mean, continuously. They can't stop them. They stopped Chernobyl in three weeks, sarcophagized it. Through Mile Island was reportedly stopped, the meltdown, in about a week. But these meltdowns are not being stopped. They don't. They aren't being stopped. Lord knows why. Why on Earth Day no one was screaming about that. But what is that doing to the soil? Now, I understand that um, sunflowers take up quite a few of the isotopes, cesium-131 and 137 to be exact. But um, do you know about borax, and can you mix that into your soil? No, it seems like you're much more of an expert on this topic than I am. Well, I think you should learn to be an expert because you're talking about our soil, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. Yes. You Please definitely do. are talking about the soil, and there's all sorts of contamination of the soils, and, and many of them are unavoidable, and, and I'm not sure what you can do about it. But I think we should start, because that's where our food comes from. You know, I think we should start really thinking about this WRU unit audience, really thinking about it. Okay, thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you, Catherine. Um, okay, Eric, the... Uh, what I'd like to, to get more into is um, just kind of the common organic gardener farmer practices of this time of year. What are you looking to do with your soil to prepare for uh, planting and upcoming crops? Are there some common activities or what would be the kind of the primary area of focus in, in your opinion, Eric? Well, I'm actually looking out from my office. I work from home, and uh, I'm, my office looks out on one of our small gardens, but it uh, is covered in part where we grew some cover crops last year. Um, there's crop debris from some of the late-season crops that were growing well into the fall, and right down the middle of it is the strip where we planted our garlic, and the garlic is about eight inches tall now coming right through the mulch. The rest of it I have to deal with. And so the most important thing to consider is that I'm actually up here in my office, not out there now, and the reason is that it's still too wet. The, you have to remember that if you work wet soil, you're going to destroy the soil structure that we've been talking about, um, and you'll compact the soil, and so you have to wait for it to get dry enough. And the simple test that I say is if you pick up some soil and make it into a fist, um, make it with a, your fist and your hand into a ball, and then take your thumb, you should be able to see that ball crumble when you press against it with your thumb. If your thumb sinks into it, like it's a ball of clay, it is still too wet and you shouldn't be running a rototiller or even a spade through it. Once it is dry enough to work, you're going to have to till in that organic debris that's on the surface so it decomposes. Um, you know what? I said you have to. You don't have to. You can leave it right on the surface. It'll just decompose more slowly if you do. So that's a decision you have to make. If you're planting seeds, you do have to prepare a good seed bed. You need your soil uh, tilled. It's not lumpy. You need good contact between the seeds and the soil. 
and that means preparing a bed. So you could leave the debris and just to prepare a tiny strip right down the middle someplace and plant into that strip. Um, This is assuming that you've already done your soil test and made sure that your pH is in the proper range and that your nutrients are adequate to grow crops. And I often do that in the fall. But if you haven't done that yet, um, then you want to do that now and make sure that you have enough in your soil to grow. Okay. Well, we. it seems like from Bruce that people are definitely doing that now. And, yes, um... <laughs> a lot of people wait till the spring. It's a Bruce's swamp. That's another reason why. Actually, what I do is I take the soil sample in the fall, and I leave it in its box um, until January, because after January 1st, uh, Bruce's lab runs a discount. Um, between January and March, I believe it is, you get a discount on doing the soil sample. And it doesn't matter if it dries up in the box um, for the soil chemicals, the nutrient status of the soil. Right. Obviously, the biological uh, status, I'm not sure if you can test if you've let it sit in the box all that long. All right. Well, Eric, we have another caller here. So we have Jody from Harborside on the line. If you'd like to go ahead with your question or comment, Jody. Yes. Um, yesterday at the hearing on GMO labeling in Augusta, um, the bill's sponsor brought up the uh, issue of Arctic apples, the new genetically modified apple coming to Maine. And I um, listed a few of the concerns about the uh, innate potato that's been genetically modified, principally for the fresh French fry market. But um, it, it could be a broader uh, market. And um, the Institute for Responsible Technology has a long piece uh, about scientists' concerns about what this will do to the environment, um, including the soil, of course. And um, one of those questions has to do with double-strand RNA interference on which this technology is based, apparently it silences some of the genes that would offer protection from pests, and that implies that more pesticides would have to be used. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that unlike the new leaf potato, which had a BT gene incorporated into the potato, um, this does not and therefore would not go before the Pesticide Control Board. Is that your understanding? Um, yes, it is. I actually am a member of the technical committee of the Board of Pesticide Control, and so we get to review any of the genetically modified crops that are considered pesticides. Um, and so uh, the BT corns have all come before us. Right. Um, and we've been able to comment on the aspects of them that we are concerned about and, and make recommendations to the board as to whether they get registered in the state of Maine, they have to be registered as a pesticide. But does this mean that there would be no regulatory oversight of these new... Uh, I fear that you are correct. Certainly the Board of Pesticide Control will not regulate them, and I do not believe there's any other agency within the state that would regulate them or ask them or maintain that they have to be registered. It would all be at the federal level, as little as that is. Uh, will you be interviewing the scientists who have studied this and writing an article for the new for the? Well, I probably wouldn't do that. Um, perhaps CJ would. Uh, <laughs> it is he is the fruit specialist at Mafka, and this new apple would certainly be in his. Family. And because we do have a potato industry in Maine, 
Uh, yeah, I'm surprised that they're going to make another attempt at a genetically engineered potato because uh, the new leaf potato that you mentioned before um, essentially disappeared because of market pressure. Right. Um, and so I, I am surprised that anyone is going to touch And there's market pressure on this because McDonald's is trying to back away from sourcing it. Yes, yeah, so I, I'd be surprised if potato growers will grow another genetically engineered potato. Well, the, the biotech industry will, of course, have a different argument that this is different. <laughs> and uh, They may try to convince them, but we should definitely in our marketing make sure it's known that we will not be buying genetically engineered potatoes. Okay, um, Jody, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to thank you for calling in with your comments and concerns, and it sounds like I have work to do on a future show thank in you. that realm. So, um, thank you for calling. We'd like to be able to get some other callers in with questions that are waiting. Um, so, I do want to remind folks that you're listening to Common Ground Radio here on WERU, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, and we have been talking about soil and spring soil preparation. Um, and we have Eric Seidman here, who is Mofka's organic crop specialist. So, um, Eric, I wanted to ask a little bit, uh, some more. We talked a little bit about the practices, but also in terms of managing the fertility of, of the soil, I know that nitrogen management for organic farmers and gardeners can be maybe a little bit tricky or a bit of a challenge. Could you speak yes, to no nitrogen a bit? about it. Uh, nitrogen is the one nutrient that is uh, in flux in the soil very quickly. Um, so potassium and phosphorus and calcium and magnesium, those are basically simply added to the soil in some sort of form, whether it be through uh, livestock manure or seed meals or something like that. And you just build up a level that is recommended for the particular crop you're going to grow. Uh, with nitrogen, the issue is is that the weather plays a tremendous role in what form in the soil nitrogen is in. And there are certain weather conditions that promote its loss from the soil. Um, when it gets too wet, the soil tends to become anaerobic. And in an anaerobic condition, nitrogen can be lost from the soil and goes up to the air as nitrogen gas. Um, and there are situations where it can become too dry. Um, if your nitrogen is sitting in an ammonium ion form, uh, it can revert to ammonia gas in that situation go and be lost in the soil. And then also the nitrate ion um, is negatively charged, and so it is not held in the soil uh, by the cation exchange capacity. And so in situations where the nitrogen in your soil is now in a nitrate form, if you get heavy rains, it can be lost from the soil dissolving in the water that's percolating down and be leached out of the soil. Mm -hmm. And so uh, nitrogen management is quite tricky. Uh, organic farmers tend to build nitrogen in the soil using uh, materials that are high in proteins. Uh, livestock manures, seed meals, fish meals are high in proteins. They add these to the soil. They break down by the biological activity and release the nitrogen in the nitrate form, which is the form plants can pick up and hope for the best with the weather that it's not lost. The other way of bringing nitrogen in is actually the best way that does the least damage to the soil because it takes less tilling. Um, and, that, and also it's uh, much less environmentally damaged because it's a cheap form from the environmental impact of producing it. And that is growing legume cover crops. 
uh, clovers, vetches, um, crops in the legume family have the ability to grow symbiotically with some bacteria that have the ability to take nitrogen from the atmosphere, which is about 80% nitrogen, and they use that nitrogen to make proteins which then degrade in the soil and form the nitrate ion that plants can pick up. Great. All right. We have we do have another caller, Eric, Great. so I don't want to cut you off on the nitrogen piece, but we can come back around to it. Um, we do have Sean from Orland on the line. So, Sean, if you'd like to go ahead with your uh, question or comment. Yeah, thank you. Um, going back to the question of burning, uh, just real quick, I'm switching the blueberry field from burning to mowing. Uh, I have ordered a flail mower, but my concern for this season is that it's, it's not going to reach me until late May, early June, and I'm Worried the plants will no longer uh, be dormant, and uh, wondering what the the uh, effects will be on uh, on my field if I mow after uh, the plants have kind of come awake for the season. And I'll just uh, well, I'm going to you know never be ashamed to say I don't know. I am not a low bush blueberry person, and so perhaps somebody can call in with a better answer. So this is your uh, off year where you're not picking, not harvesting blueberries. Correct. And you want to mow now. Um, it's a good question whether they would have um, used some energy or actually gained some energy by having leaves. And I'm hoping perhaps maybe Nicholas Lindholm is listening and he can call in and, and talk about the proper season to mow during the off year. Unless, CJ, do you know the answer to that? I do not know the answer to that, no. I'm sorry. Um so they're, we're asking for somebody who grows blueberries to call in and, and talk about the timing for mowing during the off-year and low-bush blueberries. Great. Thanks very okay. much. All right. Thank you for calling in, Sean. Um, so we are kind of getting close to the end of the show. We have about five minutes left um, and uh, maybe time for another call or so if it does come in. But, Eric, I didn't know if there was any kind of final thought on the nitrogen piece I wasn't sure if I kind of... Well, I'll continue with the cover crop. That uh, Cover cropping with legumes is actually thought of as a farming practice, but I recommend it for gardeners as well. Uh, I've got this standard recommendation that people should break their garden up into quarters, for example, and one quarter of the garden can be in a legume cover crop, and that rotates around, so each year it's a different quarter of the garden. And you could essentially grow most of the nitrogen you need in a single season of growing legumes. Um, okay. Um, Eric, we do have another caller, and we're in the final minute, so I'd like to get Lorraine, probably would be the last caller, Lorraine from Lincolnville, if you had um, your question or comment. Yeah. I, hi. Um, so I didn't clear up the garden last fall. I just left everything in there, and I'm getting ready to work in it, and I have lots of clover and assorted weeds. Should I leave the clover in it and plant things around it just to help that soil be nutritious for my next round of crops? <laughs> That's a great question because it talks about management decisions. Uh, that clover and, and many of the other weeds are great cover crops. You don't want them to go to seed, um, and with perennials like clover, you don't want them to spread and take over the garden. Um, but if you can manage them as a cover crop in certain sections of the garden, they will add organic matter, and in the case of clover, add nitrogen to the soil. Um, and so you have to make the management decision where you're going to let them grow, because they also will be competitors with your crop, even
even though it's producing nitrogen, it's actually using nitrogen as well to grow, and it's using all of the other nutrients, and it's using water. And so if you're trying to grow a crop next to the clover, you'll find the two of them competing with each other. Oh, okay, so maybe they should be um, worked back into the soil or put in the compost pile? Uh, that's exactly right. You could do either of those two things. You could let them grow in an area that you're not going to use for your vegetable crops this year and then work them back into the soil before they go to seed. Um, or you could let them grow and harvest them and throw them into the compost pile again before they go to seed. Or if you need it right now for your vegetable production, then I would work them into the ground right now and um, till them and get them decomposing and then plant your vegetables. All right, thank you. Great. All right, thank you for calling in, Lorraine. And, um, Eric, we have uh, come to the end of the show here, so I just wanted to thank you for joining us today. And um, this has been Common Ground Radio. Eric Seidman was on, organic crop specialist from Mofka, and Bruce Hoskins from the Soil Testing Lab up in Orono. And, again, this is Common Ground Radio, which is brought to you by Mofka, the first Friday of every month from 10 to 11 here on WERU. And Eric, again, thank you for joining us for the day. It's been fun. Support for WERU comes from the Hamden Farmer's Market, providing local, farm-fresh vegetables, beer and wine, artisanal cheeses, grass-fed meats, cut flowers, seedlings, baked goods, and more. Fridays from 2 to 6 p.m. at the Hamden Town Office. More information at facebook.com slash hamdenfarmersmarket or hamdenfarmersmarket.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, 